The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Save our wildlife, save the environment, save our world. It all starts with a little knowledge. Welcome to Our Wild World with L.A. Weiss. There is so much that's being done and can be done with help from specialists and marginalized community groups to you. We'll discuss the future of Africa, the wildlife, and the people, and show you how it affects the entire planet. Now, here is Ellie Weiss from the Wild Eyes Foundation. Societies value birds for economic, cultural, ethical, and spiritual reasons, which lead to aspects of avian conversation that almost invisibly goes over our heads. The decline of many bird species and populations in the wild, to the growing trend of birds keeping birds in captivity, not just zoos, but as companions. Our conversation today is going to take flight with my guest, Julie Murad, founder and CEO of the Gabriel Foundation, and we're going to move into the ever-growing and little-managed invisible crisis of birds, and just why there is a need for an organization like the Gabriel Foundation. Welcome, Julie. Hello, Ellie. Thank you so much for including the Gabriel Foundation today. Well, it's great to have you here. We've been talking a lot about captive wildlife and crisis and uh, decline of wild species, but a lot of what I've learned over the past several months did not include a conversation about birds. So I figured there was no better person to talk to than you. So for a moment, I'd like to point our listeners to a previous episode here on Our Wild World titled Feathered and Free with Julie, and it focuses on her background, the Gabriel Foundation, and about companion parrots in general. But today, we're going to talk about the growing mainstream awareness and news about captive wildlife, and that there's little on the topic of birds in captivity, particularly those we keep as companions, and the growing need for a higher level of public awareness, education, and standards. And that is what the Gabriel Foundation is focused on. So let's jump right in. We have a lot to cover today. Why are birds so desired as companions? Good question, and I think there are a multitude of answers depending on the culture and the country that one is in. But in the United States, parrots have been kept as, as companions for a variety of reasons and cherished for that. Number one, it was a socioeconomic um, high point to be able to provide for and have a parrot. Parrots were considered exotic, foreign, and oftentimes the people that had them were eccentric. Just think about Teddy Roosevelt on his trips to Brazil and coming back with the first hyacinth macaw that ever was in the United States. Its name was Eli, and it lived in the White House. 
other people go back to talking about Winston Churchill, who lived with a blue and gold macaw in his office when he was prime minister at the UK. I think that they're beautiful, they're captivating, they fly, their colors are gorgeous, they're not mammals, they're birds, and all that entails is really part of the allure that they hold for for our contemporary society. That's a really good word, allure. And I think what follows that is the illusion that we're taking care of these species and these winged creatures and that we can care for them. This isn't a, a being that's meant to fly, to be free, and here we are putting them in cages. So tell us a little bit more about in the U.S. We can get into um, other countries because I know you work globally, the Gabriel Foundation does, and that you're an expert speaker on, uh, on the issue of, and topics of caring for birds in, in captivity. But tell us a little more of, um, well, there is the family of parrots, but that's everything from the little parakeet that we immediately picture in the cage and some kid's bedroom with newspaper on the floor and a bag of bird seed to the needs of the largest birds, the macaws. There's, there's a, a wide range there. There are, and there are currently 353 different species of, of parrots and cockatoos. And that really puts it in perspective. You think about all the different dog breeds that there are, there's really only one species of, of domesticated dog. If we look at the issue in terms of cats, domestic cats, we have a variety, a proliferation of new breeds all the time with cats and with dogs, but there's really only one cat species. But with parrots, we're talking about 353 different species that are from all around the world. It's a significant number of animals to focus upon. And when you think that there are probably 10,000 or so different bird species worldwide, and 353 of those are parrots. And then we take a look at the different subspecies, we take a look at the hybrids, we take a look at the color mutations. We're factoring in a very complex number of animals that are often sought as companion animals or prestige because they're wild and they're rare. So, okay, that that's an astonishing fa- set of facts right there. So what it immediately brings to mind is, okay, we've got 353 species, you said, mm-hmm. that come from various places around the world, all different habitats, all different environments. How do we in captivity, and let's leave zoos aside, let's leave accredited associations aside, which we would assume or like to assume know better um, in how to care for them and provide for them. And let's stay to the um, the private owner or the hoarder or the sanctuary person that rescues and brings in unwanted, abused, and uh, seized birds by uh, various courts and laws. So... How do we go about, and and why is Gabriel Foundation so critical in this aspect? How do we go about understanding the needs of all these different species? They're they're unique, so wouldn't there it follow that their needs are unique? It does follow that their needs are unique. It's kind of like the saying, "One size fits all," 
But not everybody falls into that category. Someone who may weigh 95 or 100 pounds may not absolutely wear the same size as someone who weighs 200 pounds, yet the label says one size fits all. And when we look at the different kinds of species and the different terrain and altitudes and continents from which they evolve, what is their indigenous habitat, we have to look at at, at what sets a parrot up for survival. Um, and parrots really are are here to survive and propagate their species. So we look at the life stages of a parrot and it it selects a family. Um, it, be, it has a large social group. Um, it grows up and hopefully it's able to find um, a mate. Birds are sequentially monogamous. They're basically built to survive should something happen to one of the pair life has to go on, and that's far bigger than the parrot's sense of loss at losing a mate. And once that pair is established, then the entire the entire focus of production comes into place, and that's finding a suitable nesting spot, having adequate water, having abundant food, all those triggers that signal to a parrot and a parrot's biology, life is good, let's go forth, let's multiply, and let's let's get down to the business of raising babies. And parrots actually ensure their survival by laying more than one egg in that will again depend on the species and the amount of food that's there to, to provide for the species. So generally, because parrots in the wild lay a multitude of eggs and they may have different clutches or lay several times during the year, that's to ensure the survival of the species. And if you're looking at the little parakeet, which is commonly called the bajaragar, there are tens of thousands of those birds that flock together in the dry areas of Australia. And for example, when they flock together like that, there's far more protection in being in giant social groups. Safety in uh, numbers. Safety in numbers, absolutely. But you look at the larger um, some of the larger macaws, especially the hyacinth macaw, or just recently in our lifetimes in the past 10 years, that the spix macaw has essentially gone extinct. There's some individuals left. And the Lear's macaw, which was nearly extinct, has been brought back to um, a, an extremely limited and moderate population as has the blue-throated macaw. The big challenge for everyone um, who's invested in from biology and gene pool and DNA technology is that how closely related are these birds to each other? And secondly, is it a viable investment to continue to support wild, wild populations of birds and keep them safe and secure in their indigenous habitats. So the idea of having a parrot and clearly the birds that we keep in captivity now in 2015 were birds that in certainly in my lifetime that 25 years ago were flying free. This is, and, a, this is a, a bit of a scary thought that you just encompassed there in um, a the wild part of it so you've covered very eloquent eloquently their needs and their natural behaviors what what they do in the wild and why they're there without getting into they 
uh, spread pollen, they spread seeds, they make the environment grow. They are in, in, in a critical part and fill a niche, 353 niches to be more precise, mm -hmm. of keeping our ecosystem in this planet alive. So now we bring them in captivity. And this leads me into two qu differing questions. One, you talked about eggs, so we're going to get into breeding in captivity a little bit. And uh, But secondly, how do we begin to understand how to provide for these unique needs? Um, let's call it enrichment, uh, providing natural behaviors and providing for um, these needs these birds have on their daily basis in captivity. Yeah, those are incredibly significant questions, and they're questions that have been around a long time. In captivity and looking at captive animals, and certainly this has been a part of the larger wildlife from the primates and the big cats and to many of the large mammals that are kept in um, that are kept in zoos and in kept in sanctuary and other facilities, that we talk about um, a real concept of animal welfare. And it came about in 1992. It was called, and still is called, the Five Freedoms. And it was... I'm sorry, say that again? The, the five? five free, the Five Freedoms. Okay. And it was actually developed in the UK by the Farm Animal Welfare Council. And it was an attempt to define when an animal is experiencing an acceptable level of animal welfare. Here we are in Colorado, and we know of the incredible work that Dr. Temple Grandin has done in the beef industry from providing far more humane methods of um, taking cattle from basically from, from weanlings and, and young calves up and through the production and the the slaughter, um, the meat trade, and making their lives better because that impacts humans who many of them eat meat. Um, we know what she's done in terms of, of ethical treatment, care, um, in terms of providing uh, a safe life and a humane ending for those animals. And farm animals are an integral part of our culture here in the United States as they are in many, many other, in many other cultures. With all your experience in Africa and especially in Kenya, the value for the, um, the value for some of the Maasai of their cattle. And I think about some of the times that when I've been in New Guinea, the value of pigs, life in, and money and currency is in pigs. Um, but it's equally important. So for, for us Western um, societies that really use animals as a, a sustainable product, um, as the humans providing for their care, it really is on us to make their lives as comfortable and humane as possible. Um, well, you, you covered... A really interesting point there, the Farm Animal Welfare Act, which implies legislation. And you um, covered Temple Grandin, who I've talked about before, and our consideration of cradle to grave. Um, but this is, you know, that's, that's a, a product, as you said. This is a process of animals that we use, that we've domesticated, that we use for 
um, a purpose, food, uh, beyond just companionship. Many people do keep farm animals as companions. companions. Many people keep chickens as friends. They're not about to eat them. But what we're getting into here, and we're going to have to cut away to a break. So before the break, what we're getting into here is the very different aspect of companion parrots and keeping them as friends and providing them uh, with a life, as you said, from cradle to grave that is fulfilling and in which they can thrive, which we've talked about many times here on Our Wild World. So we have to cut away to a break here. Stick with me. This is a fascinating conversation. My guest is Julie Murad. Her organization is The Gabriel Foundation. You can find that at thegabrielfoundation.org, where you'll find a lot of information from adoption to care to needs to news events support services and we'll be right back stick with us wildlife no wild no life big scary beautiful predators are in danger without them our rivers dry up our forests don't grow. Our communities go hungry. Our biodiversity crumbles. Wildlife drives our planet's ecosystems. The wild effect. It's in our hands. Ellie founded Wild Eyes Foundation because she loves Africa and to remind us that there are more harmonious and less destructive ways to live on our planet. She does this so we may be able to look inside ourselves and understand the deeper partnerships that connect us all and to take responsibility for our lives and our Earth. Africa is one of our last remaining wild places and the origins of humanity. It is irreplaceable. Africa is at a crossroads, on the brink of possibilities. We can choose to let its wildlife be lost forever, or we can help save it. In Africa, it is still possible to make a difference. Visit us at www.wildeyes.org to learn how you can make a difference. We only have one Earth. If we don't care, who will? W-I-L-D-I-Z-E dot O-R-G. It's time to take a new look at some of life's changing moments. It's time to listen to an expert who has been there and can provide insight through experience, studies, and enlightening guests. Tune in to Illuminating Now, Lindsay's Life Secrets. Host Lindsay Levinson takes a look at relationships, parenting, health and wellness, divorce, depression, sexuality, philanthropy, and mental health. You'll look at everything you know in a different way. Illuminating Now, Lindsay's Life Secrets, airs Wednesdays at noon Pacific, 3 p.m. Eastern, on Voice America Variety. In the spirit of Have Couch, Will Travel, Dr. Carol Lieberman creates a haven of sanity in an increasingly insane world. Each day we are bombarded with news of events that have never crossed our wildest nightmares. Society is spiraling out of control and everyone is reeling from it. But now there's an answer. The best way to keep sane in this insane world is to tune in to Dr. Carol's Couch on Voice America. Dr. Carol, a certified media psychiatrist, will broadcast live from her Beverly Hills office every Tuesday at 1 p.m. Pacific time. Call or log in and get help with whatever is sending you reeling whenever you need a soothing voice to calm and advise you. That's Dr. Carol's Couch every Tuesday at 1 p.m. Pacific time here on America's Voice, voiceamerica.com. You 
are listening to Ellie Weiss and Our Wild World. We want to hear from you. Call into the program at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. If you'd rather send us an email, please send it to wildeyes at wildeyes.org. That's W-I-L-D-I-Z-E at W-I-L-D-I-Z-E dot O-R-G. Now, back to our wild world. And welcome back. This is Ellie Weiss and Our Wild World with my guest, Julie Murad of the Gabriel Foundation. So we sort of left off with explaining these beautiful creatures, earthlings, earthlings, non-human beings, and their welfare. And uh, that it is up to us, if we're going to keep them in captivity, to provide for their welfare. We're not going to segue into rights in this particular episode. But animal welfare so far has been defined as, for animals in captivity, is if we're going to keep them in captivity, then we must be able to provide for them so that they thrive and participate in their natural behaviors. How do you provide awareness about uh, parrot welfare? Well, it's a really good question, and we've been working with UC Davis on this on this um, very, very topic, that what do you define as welfare for a parrot? How do you look at and know that this is poor, bad, good, better, or best? And I think that, that many of the animal welfare individuals, certainly through AZA, through the long history of aviculture, which is the breeding and study of parrots in captivity, um, conservation, and really knowledge that we've we've gained so much um, in the past 10 or 15 years about what is an appropriate way to provide education, learning, and training for people and animals and companion animals. And I think that looking at what animal welfare invo- is is about how do we define it that certainly is the approach that the gabriel foundation has taken our goal has always been to provide useful tools and by useful these are tools that the person can come and visit they can learn they can read they can study we're a resource for them but to give them tools so that they have information to make the decision about what is best for them for their their life for their bird, or even for them, should they decide that they want to bring a parrot into their life. And that's the conundrum. Because we see what's happening in the wild, that over one-third of parrot species, so that's 120, close to 120 parrot species, are endangered. Then we've got the next 100, 110 or so parrot species that are threatened and vulnerable, and then we've got the birds that haven't even made it to CITES 3 yet, that they're still, they're still viable in the wild. So when we look at that and we look at captivity, because now, um, and really interestingly enough, at the same time that the, um, that the five freedoms were developed, 1992 was a really, really big year in the United States. That is when the Wild Bird Conservation Act came into place, and that is when no more wild parrots were able to be legally imported into the United States. Well, that leaves a huge gray area of the whole black market um, and wildlife trade and traffic, 
which we've covered a lot, and I just want to point out that it does include birds. They are still illegally caught and trapped. They right? are. Yes, Not necessarily are. sold here in the United States. Um, so let's get into that a little bit. Let's, let's move into legislation. I'm sorry if um, we just have so much information to cover. Um, reading through your website and your mission mm-hmm. statement and some of the tools that you do provide, you talk about, um, and this was a new fact for me, there is so much legislation between CITES, uh, trade, U.S. Fish and Wildlife, the Lacey Act, importing and not importing uh, wild-caught birds, but there is no overall legislation or act or protections for birds. No, there are not. Now, Fish and Wildlife has been working on a program for at least 10 to 15 years, and that program is working to develop laws and enforceable laws by which certain species of parrots, including macaws or cockatoos, are no longer able to be even bred or kept in the United States unless someone has a specific permit for them. Well, that's right good now, news. It is good news unless you happen to be caught in this middle diaspora where you have a scarlet macaw or you have a golden conure or you have um, a double yellow-headed Amazon, and it's been a part of your family for 20 or 25 years, and then Fish and Wildlife is going to come and say, sorry, you can't keep that bird anymore. It sounds, you don't have a permit for it. It sounds a little like the conundrum that's been created by U.S. Fish and Wildlife. 10 to 15 years is an incredibly long time to be able to come up with something. Um about the ivory, you know, and finally putting the ban on sale of ivory in the United States, and then the whole falderall created by the antique dealers that it would crash their business because of uh, guitar pins and piano keys and, you know, antique dealers and gun handles. How would they replace this? So what are you going to do about this loophole or this catch-22? I think that it it really is a catch-22, and let's start from here. Let's work our way back and to work with people because people who are are working to breed birds and don't want to have their inalienable rights tread upon, but then we've got the other complete flip side where oftentimes birds end up in the most horrific, deplorable, inhumane situations that one could pretty much ever find. This is an enormous gap. And I don't know really that federal legislation is gonna make the difference. Because when, for example, um, in the early 70s, when there was an enormous outbreak of Newcastle's disease, which is a highly contagious, virulent, Um, disease that will wipe out chicken farms and poultry breeders. There's a lot of lobbyists that are out there for um, for the poultry industry. But when Newcastle's came on, one of the things that actually happened was that, um, that USDA officials went to private individuals' residences, to their breeding facilities, wherever they could, and went in and probably at that time spread more disease and more harm than they were actually curing and took people's parrots from them, 
no matter what the circumstances and basically euthanize them on the spot. People didn't have a right to stand up and even to protect their animals, which are actually considered property in this country. This is this is a big conundrum here. Um, so it seems that there is a need for some sort of overall, <coughs> excuse me, standard guideline. Now, whether it's federal or national or uh international law mm-hmm. sounds like we're getting to a point that at least we can no longer captive uh, cap take from the wild and bring into captivity or take eggs from the wild and bring them into captivity um, so where does this branch off to in I mean you've just brought up so many I, I want to use the word outrageous um, thoughts that I don't think occurs to the average person in this catch-22. So how does Gabriel Foundation and how do you, your expertise, you've been doing this for 20, 20, 30 years, um, 30 years personally, 20 is the Gabriel Foundation. How do you work with these agencies, USDA, U.S. Fish and Wildlife, captive breeders, breeders, zoos, you name it, uh, individual owners, how do you work with filling in this gray area or defining this gray area? Well, I think the the most simple answer is one bird at a time. Um, Because uh, parrot shelters, parrot rescues, or parrot welfare organizations are not required to be federally licensed. And in fact, in many states in the U.S., they're not even required to be licensed at all. Colorado happens to have a program under the Department of Ag um, that's called the Pet Animal Care Facilities Act, PACFA. And that that particular branch of the Department of Ag actually has come up with regulations, not laws, they're not enforceable, they can, a person can be fined, but these are, these particular regulations and infringement of them do not result in any kind of criminal prosecution. Basically, the person loses a license in their ability to to house these birds. But at least in Colorado, the Pet Animal Care Facilities Act with birds has regulations, and this um, this has newly adopted the newest regulations. Uh, The Gabriel Foundation was a part of the Sunset Review Committee for the Pet Animal Care Facilities Act, and participated for over two years in developing more realistic regulations regarding far better health and safety definitions, and in fact, going back, using the five freedoms to define what's appropriate or what's inappropriate parent care, but also setting up these regulations so that when someone goes into that pet store or goes into that breeder facility or goes into that bird daycare or goes into um, the animal shelter, that they've got something to look at that's tangible and say, you know, I see 25 parrots um, of medium size crowded into a cage that looks like that that should only hold two or three. What can I do? So it's actually empowering the citizen or the individual to stand up, to take accountability and to make that difference. So by collaborating with that particular legislative piece of, of um, that particular legislative group and developing regulations, people now have a tool to look like, oh, 
this is where it should be. Oh, this is a size that's acceptable. Oh, parrots don't have to have food in front of them 24-7, but water is crucial. So again, that's one other tool that people have um, to be able to use. So that's important. But federally, there is nothing that's out there that works for parrots. And the conundrum has been that aviculture has been around in the United States for a very long time. Um, most of what we know regarding parrots now in terms of nutrition and veterinary medicine and even some of the types of enclosure has really been an adjunct that's kind of come off of the whole poultry industry. And I'm not saying in any way, shape or form that parrots are related to poultry. Um, they're birds and that's about it completely. Um, but, but some of the things that we know in terms of housing and enrichment have come from the poultry industry. And with parrots in captivity, learning about diet, learning about medicine, learning about enrichment, learning about flight, learning about the effects of uh, vitamin D and how is vitamin A used, all these things that are really essential to a parrot to have a quality of life, those are things that they actually have in the wild that we don't even think about. But when we remove a bird, from that environment, and as you said in our first segment, stick that animal that's meant to be free and fly into a cage. We take away the essential, the, the essential qualities of the biology that the bird was designed for. So how do you how do you fix that? How do you do how do you how do you supplement that? Well, I'd say one answer that comes immediately to mind is the motto or the saying that you have for Gabriel Foundation, and if I may, I'd like to read it. Many sure. have forgotten this truth, but you must not forget it. You remain responsible forever for what you have tamed. And that was by Antoine de Saint- Exupery, yes. Thank you. I could not pronounce that. I couldn't read it, actually. It was too small. Um, so you've brought up an important point. How little, how much we know, how long we've been keeping birds in captivity, aviculture, how little we've known over so many years, how much information we're gaining in the last decade, and how difficult it is to implement compliance and to implement education and awareness. So um, I think we've, we've, we could talk about this forever, and the, the loopholes, the catch-22s, and the and the the uh, cascade of consequences of not having any guidelines, regulations, permitting uh, processes in place. But let's take it uh, to we we've got about a minute left for this section. Mm -hmm. Let's go into what we can do for birds in captivity, those that we are keeping as companions. And by companion, it means someone you want to care for. So what are some of the psychological, and how, we know what the psychological and environmental needs of birds are in the wild. How do you replicate that in captivity? There are several ways to replicate it in captivity. And I think that number one, we've got to look at what, what are the essential needs for that particular species. And a budgie is not a macaw, is not a cockatoo. So let's break it down and take a look at it. And that is the critical, critical value of conservation. That when we look at the historic studies of parrots in the wild, and some of these go back to the early 1700s, 
we've got an enormous amount of resources at our fingertips about diet, about habitat, about socialization, about species locations, and number one, we could track it. But number two, we can build upon that, we can build upon that knowledge. We've got another phenomenal resource in the Association of Avian Veterinarians, which is a veterinary medical group that's been around now for 30 years. And becoming a specialist in avian medicine is something that has developed over the past 25 to 30 years. And it's pretty phenomenal to have a board-certified veterinarian who has um, who has a diplomat in avian medicine. And so knowing what are some of the downsides of not feeding a good diet, not having an appropriate environment, to what are the upsides about? How do we learn about diet nutrition? And that again is every year, every time, the days, the conferences, all the rich, the rich information that gets put together worldwide. And in fact, the Association of Avian Veterinarians also has an international conference every other year. I'm sorry, we're going to have to cut away to a break. Uh, in the end, there are resources available, so stick with us. My guest is Julie Murad, and we'll be right back and pick up this uh, amazing conversation of what you, the companion parrot owner, can do for your bird. What if there was a radio show that could demonstrate how we can cut your taxes in half without diminishing needed government services? One that could explain how to create tens of millions of jobs at no cost to taxpayers, as well as fantastic yet easily affordable health care. Side effects include cutting crime rates nationwide, providing better education for our children, international peace and harmony, and protecting your private, personal data from government intrusion. Tune in to Libertarians Working for You with Arvind Vora, weekdays at 2 p.m. Eastern Time, 11 a.m. Pacific, on Voice America Variety. Wildlife. No wild, no life. Big, scary, beautiful. Predators are in danger. Without them, our rivers dry up. Our forests don't grow. Our communities go hungry. Our biodiversity crumbles. Wildlife drives our planet's ecosystems. The wild effect. It's in our hands. Ellie founded Wild Eyes Foundation because she loves Africa and to remind us that there are more harmonious and less destructive ways to live on our planet. She does this so we may be able to look inside ourselves and understand the deeper partnerships that connect us all and to take responsibility for our lives and our Earth. Africa is one of our last remaining wild places and the origins of humanity. It is irreplaceable. Africa is at a crossroads, on the brink of possibilities. We can choose to let its wildlife be lost forever, or we can help save it. In Africa, it is still possible to make a difference. Visit us at www.wildeyes.org to learn how you can make a difference. We only have one Earth. If we don't care, who will? W-I-L-D-I-Z-E dot O-R-G. The world we live in has become a crazy place. Poverty is at an all-time high in the wealthiest nation on Earth. We keep calling on government to save us with new programs. And now, we have more people using food stamps than any time in our history. This problem continues to get worse. 
The answer to poverty is in our homes, churches, and communities, and through our children. Get the answers from The Mickey Ellison Show, Wednesdays at 8 a.m. Pacific Time, 11 a.m. Eastern, on Voice America Variety. Do you want to know what's really going on these days? Well, Capital Thinking takes you inside the worlds of policy, politics, law, and business. What happens in Washington, on Wall Street, and in our nation's legal system impacts your business every day. We're taking you on a behind-the-scenes tour of all of it. Each week, we bring you unfiltered conversation with a variety of influential policymakers, lawyers, and business leaders. I'm Kevin O'Neill, and I'm your host as Capital Thinking tours the halls of power. Join me for Capital Thinking on the Voice America Business Network each Thursday at noon Eastern and 9 a.m. Pacific Time. You're listening to Ellie Weiss and Our Wild World. We want to hear from you. Call into the program at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. If you'd rather send us an email, please send it to wildeyes at wildeyes.org. That's W-I-L-D-I-Z-E at W-I-L-D-I-Z-E dot O-R-G. Now, back to our wild world. Welcome back. This is Our Wild World with my guest, Julie Murad, and we are talking birds and uh, birds in the wild and more uh, specifically, captive birds. So previously, we were talking about what birds need in the wild, which if you're listening, then you'll get a good idea of what they do need in captivity. Um, And we've covered a little bit about pet store trade and the the growth and the uh, rise and demand of parrots and birds as uh, companions. So, Julie, what is a responsible bird owner? Well, a responsible bird owner really considers a variety of, of aspects that, that are involved in keeping a parrot healthy. Number one, we need to take a look at what are the benefits of bird ownership and what does that mean living with a bird? In the United States, parrots are considered property. And even though in the animal, the companion animal movement, there is designation to call the the legal, the responsible party, a caregiver or um, guardian, uh, the guardian, really still with birds, it is an owner because there are legal ramifications to being the owner of that animal. So I think that keeping a parrot involves, number one, knowing what you're going to get into. You know, we talk about life as free as a bird, but that's not what we so often see. We all often see an animal that really is beset by stress. I and living think, in a very limited space. Yes, it can be certainly limited in a, in a small space. And it may be that that can be adaptable for some of the smaller birds that can be out and about and flying around. I think deciding, number one, if you've made a choice to have a parrot or if you have one, What are you going to do to keep its life happy, to keep its life healthy, to keep its life psychologically enriched? And number three, to keep it physiologically enriched. So I think it's really on us or any person to provide great information on diet. And really the best places to go are to the veterinarian or to an organization that even a small breeder may have phenomenal information on raising and raising a young bird and getting it transitioned to a diet 
or our shelter because we're responsible at the Gabriel Foundation for nearly a thousand birds every day. And that's of a variety of mixed species. So how do you keep that bird active? Well, what are you going to do for that bird? Most of us work um, during our days and maybe some of us work at night, but during the day, what are we going to give that bird to do? Because in the wild, it would be surviving. It'd be out looking around, and then when it comes to dusk, it would be setting up to roost and going to sleep until the next morning when the day starts over again. So figure out what we're going to give that bird to do, what kind of a job, because an animal with a job is a happy, healthy animal. And I like to say that really, many of us humans who provide for birds take our role kind of like an occupational therapist. We're busy making toys and doing all those things, but setting up a care plan, an enrichment plan, an activity plan. Okay, what's what's tomorrow? What's the next day gonna be about for these birds? And actually spending 10 or 15 minutes to make sure that, you're, that your companion parrot has something to do during the days that you're gone. And then it, doesn't, th- it sounds like you're saying, so it doesn't get bored, you know, setting the same toy out all the time, setting the same pattern all the time is not necessarily giving it the care it needs. Because as you said, it would be busy going about life and days change all the time in the wild. So, how And do- relationships change too. Ah, yeah. So as a companion caregiver... I think that it's really important. The Gabriel Foundation certainly focuses on this. Probably seventy-five percent of our adoption process is how does a person how does a person keep their bird social? How does that person keep the bird introduced to new people? How does the bird's world stay expansive instead of staying narrow and limited? And the bird in a cage in a living room and sitting there for fifty years. This takes planning. So that really what precedes all of this is being prepared and going to a resource that gives you interest or information about what it's going to look like to keep a bird. And that's where shelters are phenomenal. And this sounds like um, a really critical point because on the downside of keeping a large bird, one that requires larger space that weighs several pounds, is um, they can be very destructive and they can be very loud. Uh, so it, in in re, in planning for bird care and thinking of taking on a bird as a companion, there are those concepts and priorities to think about. What is what the habitat that you're going to provide for this bird and has to great, have? And that's a great part of the adoption process for us. If you live in a condo and you've got neighbors pretty close by, chances are having a Moluccan cockatoo isn't going to be a great choice for you. Now, there may be birds that are far less noisy, and again, a shelter or someone who focuses on a particular species and really knows that and knows that animal as an adult is going to be able to really provide good information. And animals really are a product of their environment. And if you want to change an animal's behavior or work with an animal's behavior, you need to change the environment. And the environment is composed of so many different facets, including our behavior, diet, nutrition, sleep, bathing, and exercise. And one of the things that we have really come to see in the past 10 years that in regard to companion parrots, that the majority of birds that are now kept as pets 
have severe hypocalcemia. And in fact, they have very, very soft bones. And we know this because we see fractures uh, uh, far more extensively than we used to with birds that were captured in the wild. And we see birds that never really have a chance to spend their time climbing and foraging and flying and figuring out how to get from one place to the other because they oftentimes don't have those other amenities. So, for example, when someone comes in to adopt from us, we talk about play areas, we talk about outdoor aviaries, we talk about time walking around on the floor, we talk about climbing time, we talk about bath time, feeding time, and how do you work with a bird's behavior. Those are all quintessential questions and they're great resources available so that when someone makes the decision either to bring a new parrot into their home, whether it's buying it as a baby or even adopting it, and we definitely suggest the adoption option, they have again the tools to make that decision. So working with an adult animal, you know, you've got to be in there and figure out that your behavior is going to have that animal either trust you more or trust you less. And when you learn as a person a little bit more about a bird's behavior, you're able to have that knowledge. Birds don't just bite for no reason. Birds don't scream for no reason. Birds don't fly at someone and go after them for no reason. These are behaviors that are learned. So when birds come to the Gabriel Foundation, they don't necessarily have all those outside factors putting focus and stress on them, and birds are able to really let down and be able to be a bird. They're able to observe other birds. They're able to have, they're able to have companions um, of the same species or near the same species. So they and get to learn how to be a bird. They do, yes, absolutely. Which is important for any pet, whether it be a cat or a dog. Uh, you mentioned socialization, that the um, animal in question, the, the creature in question, understands who it is. It's not a human being. It's not a human being, and it's never going to be a human being. It may do some of the things that us humans do, and with birds, people are fascinated by the bird's ability to talk. And, you know, the questions that we get, aren't they loud? They make a big mess. Are they expensive? And do they talk? And our answer is, yeah, they do talk. They speak whatever species they are perfectly. But, oh, do they want to speak in English or Japanese or in French or in Spanish? And the bird will speak. It will replicate the sound that it hears all the time, depending on the language. And birds are phenomenally social, which is why throughout history for 2,500 plus years, they've been eagerly sought after as, as, as pets. And in fact, the first pets were brought back from, um, from Asia, from India, Pakistan, that area by Alexander the Great when he went back to Rome. That's 2,500 plus years ago, give or take, when, the, when an Alexandrine parakeet was worth dozens and dozens of slaves. You mentioned an important thing, shelters and sanctuaries, the important role they do play for the, the prospective bird owner. Let's say you're in some way rural area that has a vet that's never encountered a pet bird or doesn't have the resources. How do you know which shelter and which vets, how, how do you find out 
where to take your bird and that you're getting good information and that it's coming from a reputable sanctuary or a reputable breeder? Well, that's another really series of good questions. And I think the internet in that regard gives us a lot of information. I think if you're vested, if you're a person vested in getting a bird, it's really important to take a few factors into consideration. So that if I tell you, you know, there are a variety of aspects to to living with a parrot, take a look at our adoption application. And Gabriel Foundation has our adoption application on the website. And that it's a process. You just don't come in and get a bird and that's it. There's an educational component to adopting a bird from us. And when you, when the prospective adopter sees that information, they go, you know, I really learned something. I didn't understand that. Some of it is experiential and some of it's accidental. But going to the zoo, using the internet for a great resource. And if you don't necessarily know um, a, a veterinarian that has a special interest or is diplomated in avian medicine, then go by all means to the Association of Avian Veterinarians. Fortunately, the Gabriel Foundation has worked with that particular organization since 1997, and we've been an integral part of many, many veterinary programs, so organizations know us. But it really is incumbent on anyone deciding to make this lifetime commitment to do their homework and not just go on this emotional emotional roller coaster saying, I love that bird or that bird's in a horrific situation. I gotta get it out of there. I gotta rescue it. I gotta bring it home. And that is one of the challenges that animal sheltering also faces. It's not enough to just love an animal. It's not enough. We have to figure out what love looks like. So if you bring that animal in because you love it, and you want to provide for it and you want to save it. What's that filter then? When do you turn from that animal lover to the hoarder who can't say no? That's and an important point that, you, and I've said that a lot in terms of my work, loving animals is one thing and it's all well and good, but in the end, it's not enough. And um, you have to be responsible and that's what we've talked about today. There is a certain amount of due diligence that the prospective pet owner, bird companion, caregiver needs to um, learn. It's a must. It's not an if. It's not an oh maybe. It's, it's a must. And that um, hopefully what today has shown that there are resources out there. So once again, please visit thegabrielfoundation.org. I definitely uh, suggest our listeners read over the adoption form because uh, there's points in there that you may never have considered. What does it take to care for these birds? How can people help? People can help certainly by going to our website and taking a look at the kind of work we do. Our 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 emergency placement partners include the Humane Society, the HSUS, ASPCA, shelters throughout Colorado and actually nationally. But we have a finite facility. And even if we had the biggest facility in the world, it still wouldn't be enough to house them. And how would we be able to give those animals the kind of care and attention? So I think that if people want to really take a look at helping, I'm a virtual sponsor. You don't have to bring a bird in to, into your home to be able to help it. It costs us about, at very minimum, without any bells and whistles, about $3.50 a day to provide for every bird on site. I think that investing 
uh, in the future of animals is an incredibly important one. And if your listeners have a parrot or they have a flock or they have birds, think about what they're going to do for their bird when they are either unable or no longer there to provide for their bird. Some of our eldest birds that are with us in the Gabriel Foundation are in their 70s, and that's documented in their 70s. I've known two birds that have lived to well over 100 years of age. That's a really long time to be in someone's care. And for the Gabriel Foundation, we guesstimate, just using for calculation purposes, that most large birds will be with us till they're at least 45 years of age. We've got lots of species differences. We've got age variances for particular birds. But generally, if your listeners, if anyone there has a bird, set up some kind of care program and plan for that bird. Um, There's nothing worse than to have the family break apart and the animals lose their home. Oftentimes they're put up for auction, they're a bank seizure, they will be confiscated by animal control. Um, And when you're alive, it's the only time you have a little control over where those animals go and end up when you're no longer able physically well, this to is, provide this, for them. This has been an amazing conversation, and I wish we could go on, but we are out of time. So in the end, what we need to understand, and I hope our listeners took away today, is that you are, when you are considering adopting a bird, you are bringing in a very long-lived companion, and it's best to find out as much as you can, and there are resources available. So Julie, thank you so much. We're My guest, Julie Murad, The Gabriel Foundation, thegabrielfoundation.org. Thank you so much for the opportunity to talk to your listeners and to spread the word. And and listeners can like us on Facebook, too. We've got a lot of great information. There are a lot of happy stories out there, too. Absolutely. So thank you, Ellie, Absolutely. so much. So maybe we can have you back and we can get a little more into this deeper. But I'm sorry, we are out of time. This thank is, you. Thank you. This is Ellie Weiss and Our Wild World. Thank you again for joining us this week. Be sure to tune in next Monday at 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific Time for another edition of Our Wild World with your host, Ellie Weiss, on the Voice America Variety Channel. Think about living with wildlife during the coming week and what you can do right now. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. 